Amen. That was wonderful. Great job, children. Wasn't that great? I feel like we could probably go home after that. Right there. And thank you, Miss Pat and Pastor David, for leading in that. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, if you'd open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, uh, as we gather together on this Christmas day, you know, it's, it's a challenging thing as a preacher to bring the Word of God to bear on these special days, such as today or Easter and that sort of thing, because to really exhaust the depths of the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ when it comes to the birth of Christ, it's absolutely uh, undaunting or it's a daunting task, and it's quite impossible to try to do that in one Lord's Day. Uh, it would be a quite long sermon, which I know you guys would love, but uh, there's different aspects of the birth of Christ that you could truly take a look at. And I wanted to visit a very common Christ, uh, Christmas verse in Isaiah chapter 9 and kind of look at it in a way that I think uh, you might not have looked at it before. So Isaiah chapter 9, today as we celebrate our Savior's birth in this holiday called Christmas, I want to look at the implications of his birth. And I want to ask us, do we fully know, do we know fully the ramifications of God incarnate, Messiah's birth? And what does Scripture say about the consequences of God condescending down to earth, becoming man, fully God, fully man? So that's what I want to look at today, Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 6, I'm sorry, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Uh, and then we're also going to look at some other scriptures when it comes to the birth of Christ. So hear the word of the Lord today. Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the time together. And Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would work illuminate our minds to understand the implications of uh, Christ coming down to earth. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you be honored and glorified, that you strengthen and encourage your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week's sermon, if you were here, you heard Pastor Swan give the church a wake-up call into the condition of our nation, as if we didn't already know the depravity that our nation is in and the direction that it's going and if you haven't listened to that sermon last week, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to it. And it, the theme was that our nation just simply does not fear God. We have no fear of God in our nation. We have no fear of his word. We have no fear of his son. And it's obvious that our culture hates God. Our culture hates the truth and hates those of us that are so narrow-minded to actually think that God, what God says, is true. So how should we respond knowing where our nation is today? 
What is our Christian response to seeing how evil our nation in the direction that it's going? Is it, is it a matter of Satan is winning? Do we look at it that way? Is there no hope for the Christian church? Is there no hope for God? Uh, have we gone so far as to there's no return? Do we have a defeat and retreat mentality where we just, Satan's won, this earth is doomed, let's just go into our little homes, our little church, do our little thing? Or do we take inventory of the situation, not bury our heads in the sands, and then march forward to do that which Christ promised he would do? See, I believe the more that we understand the implications of our Savior's birth, According to the scripture, the more we can see the reality of the evil around us, as bad as it is, and still march forward with confidence. So we're going to look at the implications of our Messiah's birth, of the Christ, our Savior's birth. And there's four things that I want to look at, and I'll list them out, then we'll go through these each briefly. First, Messiah's birth brought us salvation. Messiah's birth brought the world salvation. Second, Messiah's birth inaugurated his kingdom and his reign. And because of Messiah's birth, his kingdom will always be ever increasing. And lastly, we'll look at Messiah's birth means his kingdom will have no end. So let's look at our text. The first thing that we want to look at, and it isn't obvious, the Messiah's birth brought us salvation. That may seem obvious, uh, but to many that celebrate Christmas, they don't truly celebrate that a Savior came, died for their sins, lived the life that they could never live, a life of perfect righteousness, and then died the death that you and I deserve, suffering the wrath of God. Uh, But our text shows us that Messiah's birth brought us salvation. And again, this may seem obvious. Without Messiah coming down, we would be lost in our sins. Now, to understand the great news of this text in Isaiah chapter 9, we have to understand and look at the context on where we find this passage. This passage in the history of mankind, in, the, in God's redemptive history, uh, it's a, it was a very dark period in the nation of Israel. Matter of fact, this was one of the darkest periods of all the nation, of all of the nations in all of the world. There was great civil unrest and religious apostasy, much like we see in our day. The time period which Isaiah gives us prophecy was during the divided kingdom where Judah and the ten northern tribes uh, referred to as Israel uh, were divided. The king of Israel at that time was Pekah, and he was marked as a very evil king. The king of Judah was Ahaz, and Ahaz was one of the worst most evil kings to ever walk the face of this planet, let alone the king of God's people. Second Kings chapter 16 says that Ahaz not only offered sacrifices on the high places, which was forbidden by God, it says that he even made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel. This was a reference to the child's sacrifice to the pagan god of Molech. This king Ahaz not only did evil in the sight of the Lord, he offered his son, killed his son to the god of Molech, uh, which we see that perpetuated today in the sin of abortion and how so many are 
sacrificing their children on the altar of convenience. It's a modern-day Molech situation. But here you had the king of God's people offering his own son to the god of Molech. Pekah, who was the king of Israel, at the time formed an alliance with the king of Aram, a pagan king, and they wanted to go conquer Judah. And if you flip back to Isaiah 7, it actually says that they went to go attack Judah, but they were not successful, it says. But if you look at the story, excuse me, yeah, seven, uh, Isaiah 7, verse 1, it says that they went to wage war but could not conquer it, verse 1. And that's all Isaiah gives you, but if you look at actually what happened, it wasn't just a, an attempt, they literally were going to overtake Judah. And in 2 Kings chapter 16, it says that they, Judah lost 120,000 people to death in this war, in this battle. That was in 2 Chronicles chapter 28. Not only that, you had Israel and Ram invading Judah. They kill 120 people, and then they take 200,000 more as captives away. Again, you can find this in 2 Chronicles 28. So they're taking them from Judah into captivity into Israel, but a prophet named Oded came to rebuke Israel's ruthlessness and threatened the judgment of God unless they released the captives, and they ended up releasing those captives, taking them back to Judah. So that's the context where we find this scripture in Isaiah. It wasn't just a small battle. They lost a, a tremendous amount of lives, a tremendous amount of other lives were taken away into captivity for a moment, brought back. And then you had a ram sort of setting up forces around Judah. So Judah was threatened from all around, from their brothers Israel, from the king of Aram. So Judah was terrified. You can read this. They're, they're, they were terrified that Aram was going to move in and take over. So in the midst of all this darkness, that's where we find Isaiah chapter 9. God sends Isaiah to this wicked king, Ahaz, who sacrificed his own son on the altar of the god of Molech. And back in chapter 7, you can read, he sends Isaiah to encourage Ahaz. He sends Isaiah to Ahaz to tell him that Israel and Aram would not prevail against them. He even tells him in chapter 7, ask of me for a sign. I'll give you a sign to tell you what I'm telling you is true. And Ahaz declines. He tries to be pious and say, oh, I don't need forbid. God forbid, I don't want a sign. And that's where God says, well, I'm going to give you a sign. Look at Isaiah 7. Look at verse 13. Since in verse 12, Ahaz says, I will not ask for a sign. I will not test the Lord. Here you have a wicked king trying to act religious by saying, I'm not going to test the Lord. And so God says, well, I'm going to give you a sign anyways. Not only does he give Ahaz a sign, in verse 13, he addresses it to the whole house of David. And he gives them a sign and says, this is where we get another famous Christmas passage. In verse 14, it says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And he goes on to say, and look at verse 16, it says, For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. 
When we address prophecies, oftentimes there's a temporary fulfilling of that prophecy and then also a long fulfillment, a complete fulfillment. And that's what we have here in Isaiah. He says this this child's going to be born and before the child can know enough to refuse good and evil, those two kings that are attacking you will be forsaken. They'll be torn down. So Judah, friends, is on the brink of being destroyed. Why is all this important? What does it have to do with Christmas? But do you remember the covenant that God made with David? Do you remember the unconditional promise that God gave to David, that unconditional covenant that upon David he would establish his kingdom forever? And here you had Judah, which came from, which you had, um, you had Judah, and that's where the Davidic kingly line was being perpetuated. And you had Judah being threatened of being wiped out. If Judah had been wiped out by Israel and Aram, then the Davidic covenant would have failed. God's promise would have failed. But God says, don't worry. My promises will not fail, and I will give you a sign. And this virgin will be bear a child, and she will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So as I mentioned, this was temporarily fulfilled in Isaiah's son in chapter 8. Uh, you can read there. But this was also had its complete fulfillment. We see in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 and 23, where Joseph is visited by an angel, and it says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill that, was, that which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So friends, I want you to understand the backdrop and the darkness that was, ha- that was happening in the time where Judah came to this prophecy, first in verse 7, and then we're going to look at chapter, chapter 7, then we're going to look at chapter 9 of this son that was going to come. This was such joyous news that this son would come, God with us. You had absolutely no sign of God. You had wicked kings on the left, wicked kings on the right. You had religious apostasy permeating throughout the country, and yet you had a glimmer of hope that God's promise would not fail, that it would come to pass, that he would fulfill his covenant that he made with David. Friends, we think we're in an evil day today. The time set during this period was a lot darker. It was a lot more evil. And who would have known that God would have brought about his promise and his Savior, the Anointed One, Jesus Christ? It's also important to know that this virgin birth is an absolute must for our salvation. It's a non-negotiable. You cannot separate the deity of Christ from the virgin birth of Christ. This is central to Christianity. In Isaiah 9, when we get back to our text, it says that this son is actually God himself. Why is the virgin birth so central to our salvation? Well, friends, in order for us to be saved, there has to be a sacrifice that is worthy enough to take the whole suffering and the wrath of God for us to be saved. And a father that is a human and a father that is a, or a woman that is a 
human mother. Two humans can't make God. So that's why you did not have the seed of Joseph. You had Mary impregnated who came overcome by the Holy Spirit and was, gave forth a, his, her firstborn son. The word says that Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. So this promise in chapter 7, Emmanuel, God with us, came by the virgin birth. Let's look at how Isaiah describes this son in chapter 9, verse 6. It says that this son will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. When the Bible says that he would be called Wonderful Counselor, in Colossians chapter 2, it says that all the riches of wisdom is found in Jesus Christ. And then he would be Mighty God. When Jesus came down, he was born of the Virgin Mary. There's no question that he was fully God. This is what Isaiah was looking forward to. This son who would be born of the virgin from chapter 7, he would be God incarnate. He would be mighty God. Eternal Father, which speaks to his, his, uh, his leading and guiding as his fatherly figure, and he would be the prince of peace. They had no peace during that time. And not only would he be Prince of Peace in our hearts, but he would give us peace through God, through the sacrificial atonement of Christ. So we, although it's obvious, the incarnation of Christ, the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, was necessary because it brought us salvation. And without the birth of Christ, we would still be lost in our sins. But the next thing I want to notice in this text, in Isaiah 9, is that Messiah's birth inaugurated the kingdom of Christ. Jesus came to rule the nations by overcoming them with the power of the gospel. In verse 6, look at what it says. It says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. This is speaking of the power and position that Christ would have. The whole government would rest upon his shoulders. This is pointing to God ruling the governments of the nations. And then in verse 7, in verse 7 it says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Brothers and sisters, it's important for us to remind ourselves in our dark day when evil is permeating the land that Christ rules. Christ is ruling even now. Christ did not relinquish his kingship. Christ did not say, okay, I'm just going to step back and kind of let, let things happen as they wish. Christ is actively ruling and reigning now. Look at what this verse says in verse 7 again. It says that there will be no end to the increase of his government on the throne of David and over his kingdom, listen, to establish it. To establish what? To establish his throne and his 
governing, his governance, his throne, and his kingdom from then on and forevermore. The Son will have a kingdom, as Isaiah is pointing in the future. The Son will be born and he will have a kingdom that will be established, it says, from then on and forevermore. That word then on is an adverb, or your version may say, from henceforth and forevermore. That word in the Hebrew is functioning as an adverb, which means it's describing the verb before it. What is the verb? To establish it. What is this saying? It's saying that he will establish his kingdom from then on and forevermore. It's it's the idea of a perpetual kingdom. He will establish his kingdom from then on. When's the then on? Think about what Isaiah is saying here. A son will be born to us, and he will establish his kingdom from then on, from when he comes the first time forevermore. There's no indication, friends, that there's a time period when the Son is born to when later he establishes his kingdom. There's no time period in the text. God never holds back. I remember years ago I had a brother that said, you know, God has just relinquished his reign. He's not not ruling. He's not reigning. Don't you see all the evil in the world? There's no way God is ruling and reigning. But the text does not say that. And friends, we cannot get our theology by reading the news. We cannot get our theology by our own experiences. We have to develop our theology by the word of God and by the word of God alone. This text that we see that on the throne of his David, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, this is fulfilled when Christ comes and we read it earlier in Luke 1 verse 32 and verse 33. It says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. And his kingdom will have what? No end. His kingdom would have no end. When Christ came, when he was born of the Virgin Mary, he came not only to save sinners, he said, I came to seek and save the lost. He didn't... He, He came not only to save their people, his people, from their sins. He came to establish a kingdom. He came to establish a kingdom. And isn't that what the Gospels say? How did John start his ministry? Matthew 3, 2 says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is what? Is at hand. It's here. He is announcing the kingdom. It's here. And how did Jesus start his ministry? Matthew 4, verse 17 says, Repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It says that again in Mark 1, 15. Kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Matthew 10, 7, when Jesus commissioned his disciples, he said, And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is here. Christ's kingdom was inaugurated at his birth. He didn't relinquish it. He hasn't relinquished it. When Christ returns, it's not to establish his kingdom, but it's to consummate his kingdom and to judge the world. Not only did he come to establish his kingdom, he came 
to increase his kingdom. And I think we miss that sometimes. If you look at verse 7, it says there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. The kingdom of God, my friends, from the first time Jesus came is ever increasing and it will keep increasing until Christ consummates his kingdom by coming again. Jesus in the parables, the the mustard seed, right? He says the mustard seed, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in the field. And it's smaller than any other of the seeds. But when it's fully grown, it is larger than any of the garden plants and become a tree. So the birds of the air come and rest, nest in its branches. Same thing with the parable of the leaven. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was leavened. The kingdom of God started small, did it not? It started with his 12 disciples, and he said, The kingdom of God will permeate the whole world. It's like leaven that will work throughout the the whole uh, dough until it's fully leavened. And that's what we're seeing today, is it not? The kingdom of God is increasing, and it's increasing to take over Satan's domain. Friends, I know this is hard to believe because we see the downswing and the downtrend of our culture. We see the depravity of our culture. But friends, if you look over a 2,000-year period, from the time that Christ came 2,000-some years ago to today, I'm a data guy. Graph the kingdom of God for me. Is it not increasing overall? There may be some downs and some ups, but overall from when Christ came and started with his 12 apostles to now, the kingdom of God and the gospel is all throughout the land. Yeah, there may be a downswing, but friends, in the whole scheme of things, God's word is not failing. And what did Jesus say to Peter upon this confession? Upon this, I will build my church. And what did he say? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell. The gates of hell. Gates are a defensive mechanism, are they not? So then what's going to bust through the gates is the kingdom of God. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the word of God coming to bear upon our culture. And even think about the Great Commission. Jesus said, I have all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Therefore, go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, commanding them all things I've told you, right? Do you think that Jesus would give the Great Commission knowing it would fail? What was the command? To go make disciples of all the what? The nations. Why would Jesus give a command that would fail? We need to be more confident that God will see through his promises. We can't look at the headlines again. Uh, we can't. We have to look overall of what Jesus is doing. And the Messiah's birth and his kingdom inaugurated on earth means that God's kingdom will have no end. If we look again at the text, there will be no end to the increase of the government of peace. He'll establish it and he'll uphold it with righteousness from then on and forevermore. And in case you had any question that God would accomplish this, he ends by saying the zeal of the Lord of hosts will 
accomplish this. The Messiah's kingdom will never end. That is good news. That should give us confidence. Turn with me briefly to Psalm chapter 2. This is a, a text that shows that Christ's kingdom will endure forever. Psalm, Psalm number 2, starting at verse 6. After looking at all of the nations in the uproar, after looking at all the people devising their plans against the Lord, after looking in verse 2 at the kings taking their stand against the Lord and against his anointed, verse 6 says, this is God, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations of your inheritance. Doesn't that sound like the Great Commission? To make disciples of all the nations. And the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron. You shall shatter them with earthenware. If you look at the text where it says, Ask of me, no, excuse me, back up. Where it says in verse 7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This was quoted in the New Testament quite often. Once in Acts 13.33, speaking of the resurrection of Jesus, it says that God fulfilled this promise to our children, that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. So here in Acts, it's referencing his resurrection, and it's pointing back to Psalm 2 and pointing back how Jesus, how God said, Today I have begotten you. And when God raised Jesus from the dead, he gave him the name above every name, and that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. It's not a coincidence that he's quoting this text from Psalm 2, where he says, Ask of me the very next verse, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. Let me ask you a, friend, a question, friends. God raised Jesus from the dead. Here in Psalm 2, he says to Jesus, ask me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. Do you think Jesus forgot to ask God? Do you think Jesus just forgot to ask God for the nations as his inheritance? And this is just all for naught and we're losing the battle, Satan's won, and until Jesus comes back and raptures us up, there's no point. Let's just have a defeat and retreat mentality. Go back to our little churches and, you know, just stay in your little home and let's just teach our kids the things. But let's not try to take the gospel to affect the culture and to win souls for Christ and to take the kingdom of God into the culture. Let's not do that. Let's just retreat and defeat. It's not a matter of if, friends. We see in Scripture, it's only a matter of when and how God will do it. Brothers and sisters, I see Scripture declaring that God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom, is here now. And Christ is subduing his enemies through the gospel, not by force. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. He's conquering his enemies through the power of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he will continue to do so until he makes 
all nations and all his enemies bow to the knee of Christ. In the New Testament, outside of quoting the Ten Commandments, the most quoted Old Testament verse is Psalm 110.1, where the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool in your feet. It's quoted in the Gospels, it's quoted in Acts, it's quoted in Hebrews. What are the New Testament writers saying? They're saying this Jesus who conquered death, who was raised from the dead, now sits at the right hand of God until all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Brothers and sisters, it is good news that should encourage us that God Christ is sitting upon his throne. He is active, he is ruling and reigning and will continue to do so until he made all his enemies under our feet. Friends, if this truly got deep into your heart, if this reality truly got deep into your soul, it will change the way you look at life, it will change the way you parent your kids, it will change the way you talk to anybody. It will change your whole life if you know and realize that Yes, there's evil in the world, but Christ has won and he will continue to win until all his enemies are put under his feet. This is not just pie in the sky, wishful thinking. Friends, think about the dark ages back in the 12, 1300s, 1400s, leading up to the Protestant Reformation. Do you think for a minute those people who were locked in tyranny and grave evil, do you think they would have ever thought? That there would be this great awakening of the Reformation and the gospel be brought to life and the tyranny of the Roman Catholic Church be brought down. Did you ever think that they would think that? No. They would have thought what most of Christians think now. Well, Satan's won. Let's just hang out till Christ comes, raptures us. Uh, But friends, that's not a reality. We don't know what God's doing. But I want to end in 1 Corinthians 15 today. Flip there with me. 1 Corinthians 15. Starting at verse 20. First Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so as also in Christ all will be made alive. But each to his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are at Christ, who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. Do you hear that, friends? Now listen, look at verse 25. This is key. It says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Look at verse 25 again. He must reign. That word reign is in the active tense. He never stopped reigning. He's still reigning today, friends. And then it says that he must. That word in the Greek is de, which means it is necessary, is an absolute must. It's the same word when Jesus visited his disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. When he said, wasn't it necessary? That's the same word. Wasn't it absolutely necessary 
for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. Christ is reigning. It says he must reign until when? Until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So then, how then shall we live? Knowing these great truths, what's our Christian response? The first thing, brothers and sisters, is do not be in despair. Do not be in despair. Don't read the headlines and be in despair. Take inventory, yes, of our situation. Don't bury your head in the sand. But let these truths that we learn today permeate your soul and meditate upon them. Meditate upon the reign and the rule of Christ until it has affected you in such a way that your heart overflows with the peace of God. Psalm 42.5 says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. So don't be in despair about what your eyes see out there. We don't know what God's going to do. We don't know how God's going to do it, but what we do know is that he is reigning and he will put all of his enemies under his feet. And perhaps he's waiting for the church to break down and repent and cry out to him in prayer and not only cry out to him in prayer, but then take action and act as if he is going to win. Friends, imagine if you were going into a, a sports game and you were practicing to a championship game and you knew that that team was going to beat you and you had no absolutely no chance of winning they were the nba all-star team and you were just a a couple guys right you knew you were going to lose how would that affect you going into that game now take that same situation and what if you knew that you absolutely were going to win that game how would that affect the way you went in your mentality Friend, that's what we have to do. We have to, we have to realize that Christ uses our feeble efforts. Whatever context God puts you in, moms and dads, we should be raising our kids to be missiles for Christ, to go out into the world and not succumb to the culture, but to go out in the world and affect the culture for Christ. So we can't be in despair, friends. And then lastly, we have to wake up We have to get out. We have to get out there and take ground for the kingdom of God. As Pastor Swan said so eloquently last week, we have to stop keeping our mouths closed. We have to speak of the righteousness of God to everybody. When Christ rules and reigns, he's not just ruling and reigning in the church. He rules and reigns over the government of the United States. He rules and reigns over all the colleges and universities. He rules and reigns over your family, over your neighborhood, over your your social activities, over your education. He rules and reigns over everything, and we must live in that reality. Friends, I've been there before. Just years ago, I had a defeatist mentality. I retreated into my little family, into my little church. But friends, if that's been you, you have to repent of having that defeat and retreat mentality because it stifles the gospel. Oh, oh well. You know, we can get in our, our reformed theology a little too, too much and say, well, God, he is sovereign and he'll save those people. And, you know, I'm just going to focus on my little family. And uh, that is not a good position to be in. It stifles the gospel when we have the retreat and defeat mentality. We have to wake up, repent of that mentality and get out there. And with confidence, 
with confidence that Christ is ruling and reigning, we have to take the kingdom of God and the gospel into the world. We need to act as if Jesus wins because he does win. We need to raise our kids as if Christ will use them to grow his kingdom. So, have lots of kids. Raise them in the fear of the Lord. Launch them into the world, not to be conformed to the world, but to affect the world for the kingdom of God, to take ground over the enemy. Is Jesus your king? Is this the king that you serve? Is Jesus just a baby in a manger that came so that you can have a happy life? Or just a baby in a manger that, yeah, he's good for, you know, my salvation, but he's not ruling and reigning over all areas of my life? You know, if Christ isn't king over all of your life, if you haven't submitted to Christ as Lord over all of your life, he is Lord of nothing of your life. Is Christ your king? If you don't know Christ today, I pray that you would come in repentance, put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. He is the King of kings, and he will come back to judge the living and the dead. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. While you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I pray the Spirit of God will work into your life, and if you're not in Christ, that you would come in faith. And brothers and sisters, those of us that are in Christ, may this word encourage us this Christmas day. That Christ is not just a baby laying in a manger. He is ruling, he is active, he is reigning, and he has a plan to put all of his enemies under his feet. And let's get out there with confidence, with humbleness, and let's take the gospel to bear upon this world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your grace, your mercy. Lord, you have been so kind to us. God, if not by your mercy, we would still be in our sins. Lord, we would still be our depraved, sinful man and women. Lord, we pray that you would be honored and glorified in our lives. God, we pray that we would live as if you are the King of kings, ruling and reigning upon your throne. Father, that may that give us the confidence and the zeal and the fortitude Lord, to take the word wherever you placed us, God, and to bring it to bear upon our culture, upon our neighbors, upon our friends, with all humbleness, Lord, with all humility, and, and may our words be as seasoned with salt, God, but may we not compromise upon your word. May we not compromise upon your perfect standard revealed in your law. Lord, we thank you that we can gather again today. May you be honored and praised in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.